Welcome to Ramble City. All right, one of the other things that I found really interesting, Alan, was besides um, Jagger and Richards, he was the only member or is the only member so far to date that's appeared on every album in the Rolling Stones discography. Is that true? Uh, yes, that's absolutely true, and beyond, because I think there was a there was an album that they recorded when they were domiciled in France called Jamming with Edwards, which was sort of put together when Keith Richards didn't turn up to a session. And it was basically wow. just him, Mick Jagger, and Nicky Hopkins, a keyboard player, and other people just sort of messing about. And it came out on it as a sort of budget price album. But yes, he was on um, not every track, but certainly every album. Um, that, that they ever release. I mean, How many sometimes albums is that? Um, I don't know. Oh, come on, we're all right. Okay, I think. Well, I mean, I've got my book here, which I wrote. You know, which is which their entire Pull it up. discography. There we go. That's, that's I mean, the, the best is it, plug it, segue, it, segue I've ever heard, Alan. That is the best well, plug it, segue I've ever heard. For some of us, 2021 was the first time we had heard the name Charlie Watts. But for others, he had always been that drummer sitting at the back of the Rolling Stones, a man who lived a life almost at opposites with everything we know about the band. A man that scaled the heights of rock and roll while wearing a tailor-made three-piece suit. Hello, Bradley McCaw here. Welcome to this week's episode of Ramble City. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Today's guest is Alan Clayson, an English singer-songwriter, author and music journalist. Started his career as the leader of a 70s rock band, he eventually established himself as a very prolific journalist and music biographer with biographies on The Beatles, The Stones, Brian Jones, Roy Orbison, Led Zeppelin, and honestly, the list goes on. Go to our show notes to see an entire list of his credits. It is huge. We recorded this just after Charlie Watts passing in late 2021 and we talk about Charlie's career and life as a jazz drummer who found himself outrageously successful in you know playing in a band that he never planned to. We cover some of the outrageous facts and stories of rock and roll life and how Charlie and Mick uh, were kind of two opposite ends of this spectrum. And we dig into how Alan writes, how he selects his musical subjects and some of the things that he's been working on recently and some of the crazy stories that exist around someone that writes biographies of of the stars that we love. Don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and of course, subscribe to our mailing list at bradleymccawofficial.com and if you want to hear some of my music, just search me wherever you get your music at Bradley McCaw. But let's kick this off by exploring the significance of Charlie Watts and his impact on rock and roll. We're paying tribute to the legacy he left for musicians and, well, anyone with ears, really. So thank you, Charlie Watts, wherever you are. Thank you for the music. And we hope that this passes on some of what you've, you've left here on, on planet Earth. I'm Bradley McCaw, and this is Ramble City. Welcome to Ramble City. <laughs> It is currently uh, 1 p.m. GMT and it is 11... No, it's it's 1 p.m. GMT and 11 p.m. What time zone am I? A-E-S-T? We are using... No, what am Pacific I in? Time. Am I in Pacific time? Am I, Alan? I don't even know what time so. I is. All I know is yeah. it's late. That's all I know. Yeah. And we're here to talk about Charlie Watts and I'm so excited. Alan, thank you so much for talking being being here on Ramble City. Thanks for joining us all the way from London. You're very welcome. Uh, so 
so I thought we'd, we'd kick off this episode by by seeing if you could explain to us the significance of Charlie Watts and his career in rock and roll music, just kind of as a broad starter for anyone that doesn't know where to kick off. Well, for a start, he he was fundamentally, he was a jazzer. That's how he sort of entered the world of music, I suppose. That's where he first sort of, um, sort of became interested. I mean, the first record that actually made any sort of impression on him was was by um was by um earl bostick it was called flamingo um which was a you know very much a jazz record uh but i think that the the turning point was hearing a song by um the uh clyde mulligan quintet called um walking shoes actually it wasn't clyde mulligan i'll just look this up yeah great <laughs> okay it was the jerry mulligan oh um, close yeah um which was called walking shoes and uh, <clears throat> and that was sort of what made him understand that although it was a sort of frontline players that kind of um shaped a piece of music it was the drummer that made the most sort of insidious difference um right in the sense that as well as just simply anchoring the song it sort of allowed it to glide on 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 sort of um you know on the wings of of music i suppose um and and that sort of effectively is kind of you know convinced him that he wanted to be a drummer rather than say a, an alto saxophone player which was what his first jazz hero was and um, charlie yardbird parker right. and um as a result um charlie constructed a snare drum from a from a banjo he sort of disconnected the, the neck of it and and you sort of use it as a sort of very primitive snare drum. And he also constructed a, a stand for it out of Meccano. Wow. And that was sort of the beginning of it. And I think his parents might have got rather sick of him sort of smiting the furniture, you know. <laughs> and, and so they sort of gave in and, and bought him a second-hand drum kit. And and that's how, you know, that's how things continued after that. And as a result, he started to sort of perform in, in sort of various local groups local to uh, where he lived in West London, and I think he started off in, in a functions band, you know, playing sort of bar mitzvahs and wedding receptions and all that sort of thing before he actually joined sort of legitimate modern jazz combos, and right. you know everything followed from there really. But I mean, having said that, I mean I think it's a myth that Charlie didn't like rock and roll. Um, right, because, yeah, I've uh, heard that a bit. When, People, that's, that's, there's well, a lot of that been going around the last week or so. Well, it's just that where he lived, he, he was very... Um, you know, he knew people like Screaming Lord Such. You heard of him? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was the most famous English pop star that never had a hit. And he um, had a group called The Savages, which contained a drummer called Carlo Little, and you know, um, Carlo was, was a friend of Charlie's, and, Ch- and also Charlie was very familiar with sort of Chuck Berry and, and sort of um, Little Richard and people like that. Right. So, as I say, it was a myth that he didn't like rock and roll; and he was just doing it for the money. And I think that, that his his love of rock and roll, or at least his familiarity with it, with it was a point in his favour when he was headhunted to join the Stones. 
which he joined in January 1963. And the rest, as they often say, is history. So when he was starting out, really, so his kind of, as you're saying, his his understanding of the role of a drummer in these jazz ensembles and in the music that he first fell in love with um, led him to be able to fill uh, a really strong place in the core of, of the ensembles that he played in and kind of brought emotion and a simplicity to the way that he played. And that, yeah, that I is mean, kind it, of... It, enduring part of his legacy really is that that's kind of in a nutshell isn't it that it's his style and his simplicity is it well yeah i mean there was a point where he and dave clark as in the dave clark five were second only to ringo as the world's most famous drummer um and ringo said that you know that he admired charlie because charlie left out more than he did i mean if you think about you know Charlie's drumming on, on the mo- most famous recordings of the Rolling Stones. I mean, the, the only sort of embellishments seem to be, for example, um, when he sort of did that rataplan at regular intervals on Get Off of yeah. My Cloud and sort yeah. of things like that sort of that sort that's of the most outlandish you got, that, the that most buddy Richie got. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, I mean, uh, it's it's very easy to sort of, for somebody like Keith Moon to kind of overshadow Charlie simply because of his sort of his extrovert drumming, you know, which was mm. essentially, you know, overtly busy, gratuitously busy, in fact, whilst keeping a precise backbeat, whereas Charlie just sort of kept things plain and simple. And I think that that's what sustained him. And I mean, it's questionable whether the Stones will ever be the same without him if they mm. if they choose to continue. Mm. I mean, um, I think Mick Jagger said that, you know, there'd be no Stones without Charlie. And, uh, you know, I think that possibly, you know, it, it won't, if, if, they, if the group does decide to continue, it won't be so much the Rolling Stones as a Rolling Stones, if you see yeah. what I mean. So there's there's a uh, an explanation for those that don't can't completely comprehend what you're saying, Alan, or what we're trying to describe. And uh, I sort of wrote this out a little bit. So what uh, the significance of the playing is kind of can be explained like this. So technically, what Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts were kind of doing with this feel was that technically they were leading with their right foot on the bass drum, which is the do do do, no the kick drum, yeah. that sort of that's pushing the band forward as you were explaining, and then meanwhile the left hand with the snare, which is the backbeat, is a little more relaxed and like a little lazy, and it's kind of like that that combination of propulsion moving forward and then sort of this yeah. this relaxed. Well, that's, that's what I said. That's, uh, that's what I'm saying. Just to comprehend it so people can see it, because I think if you're yeah, not that's musical, what I said you know, earlier. Yeah. You know, it, you know, it's necessary to both anchor it and allow the piece of music to glide on the strongest possible wind, yeah. um, which is, you know, that that's sort of what sustained him throughout his entire career. Um, he tended to be rather um, almost dismissive of his skill as a jazz drummer um, because when he formed the Charlie Watts Jazz Orchestra much later on, he actually employed two other drummers to sort of play alongside him, um, although he, he did come into his own when he, he sort of reduced it to the more sort of less cumbersome um, quintet, and although it became a 10-piece a, a later on. Yeah, well. um, 
But um, yeah, he's had one know, guy for I mean, fills, didn't he? He he just he just held he just held down the rhythm, and he had just one guy just playing the fills. Charlie, just stop! I'm yeah, being funny. But what's in, yeah, but what's interesting, and we, I think, which is in a way, it's it's the basic key to the stone stone sound, is that um, Charlie tended to take the tempo from from Keith Richards, you know, mm. rhythm guitarist. Uh, although I mean, he would refute that. But I mean, um, you know, Keith Richard very much sort of did the countings and stuff like that. And and Charlie tended to follow Keith rather than, you know, what, what usually happens in the sort of two guitars, bass, drum pop groups is that they sort of take it directly from the drummer. And I think mm. that a lot is it to do with that very sort of split second between sort of Keith sort of announcing the tempo and Charlie sort of following it. And they often sort of play games on each other during things, you know, like Charlie, like Keith would sort of insert some sort of strange rhythm within the bar lines and Charlie would have to try and pick up on it. But I, I think that sort of enabled the Stones to sort of continue that kind of ramshackle lucidity that they had, yeah. you know. So the, his first um, public performance as a member of the group uh, I read was at the Erling Jazz Club. Is that the right way to say that? The that's Erling right. Yes, that's the Erling Jazz Club. Well, Ealing I mean, Jazz Charlie was a, mem- was a member of the um, the house band there, Blues Incorporated. And after a while, Mick Jagger became a sort of second string vocalist. I mean, the main vocalist, and it was somebody called Long John Baldry. Uh, um, Charlie sort of became a member of Blues Incorporated. It was actually quite a, a distinguished lineup because it had Jack Bruce in it on double bass and Dick Hextall-Smith and Graham Bond, you know, all quite well-known um, figures in, in not so much pop music as, as, as rhythm and blues. Mm. And anyway, as I said, Mick Jagger was the sort of second string vocalist and Another person that used to appear regularly at the evening club was um, was Brian Jones. And really the Stones became an amalgamation of, of Brian Jones and the pianist called Stuart. God, sorry, I can't remember his name. That's all right. Well, Stuart, that's his name. Stuart. It's, it's so humid here. Is it really? Brad, it really is. Yes, it's murderous at the moment. Oh, no. I want to have a fan going. But um, anyway, um, he sort yeah, of I amalgamated. I can see the sun streaming in right there, Alan. I can see the sun oh, right on you. Awful. It's, it's, yeah. Is it awful? <laughs> oh, what is it saying? I won't can tell I you what the up? weather's like here. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't tell um, you that the weather's a, a balmy. What is it here? We don't know. Yeah, I know. Um, Stuart, Ian Stewart. Ian Stewart. It oh, wasn't Stewart. His, his last Ian name Stewart. was Stewart. There you uh, go. Anyway, it, it, it was it, it, the Stones was effectively an amalgamation of, of Brian Jones and Ian Stewart, plus this group that was going in Dartford, where um, where where Mick Jagger lived, and it, it involved sort of Keith Richards and a bass guitarist called um, called Dick Taylor. Right. Um, and Dick Taylor was soon replaced by Bill Wyman. And incidentally, Dick Taylor went on to form the Pretty Things. Do you uh-huh. know of them? No, not terribly yeah. well. Well, they were famous for being ba- banned for life 
from New Zealand. <laughs> really? Um, when what they did, did they a do? Tour over there and, uh, well, they did a tour over there and th- their behaviour was so outrageous that it led to a sort of lifelong ban. Um, but anyway, th- they, they, they were sort of the pretty things were formed to sort of make the Rolling Stones look like the proverbial vicarage tea party, <laughs> you know. But anyway, the point is that, that you know, as I said, that, that the, the, the Stones was an amalgamation of, of, of factors within the Ealing Club. And, right. you know, it sort of continued like that. I mean, I think that uh, there was a certain purist faction in it which wanted to play pure blues, but that sort of, they, they sort of auditioned and they tried out, but they decided not to continue with the Stones, who were sort of trying to draw Chuck Berry and Little Richard and people like that into the vortex of yeah. blues. And, and, you know, they disagreed. I just wonder what how, how such people are feeling now. There's a fellow called Jeff Bradford was involved um, and I just wonder what, what became of him. I mean, um, how many people, you know, that, that spent their lives in offices and factories had once sort of been in on the, the ground floor of some famous group? Mm. You know, I mean, there's, there's a bloke called, called, I mean, well, I'll tell you an example. Um, I mentioned earlier on um, Carlo Little, who was with um, Screaming Lord Such and the Savages. Well, apparently Carlo was a very early stone, but he decided right. that his earnings with Lord Such were more, you know, more attractive. And he gave um, Brian Jones, he wrote down Charlie Watts's phone number on a, on a cigarette packet and handed it to Brian Jones and thus sealed his fate. And what was interesting is that in the 1990s, when the Stones were on at Wembley Stadium in London, that Carlo was outside manning a hot dog stall. And I just wonder how he felt when he could hear, you know, the, his successor in the Stones, he hear the beat, the muffled beat through the walls, you know, and, if only he'd, he'd, he'd stuck with the Stones rather than the Savages, you see. I mean, Carlo, who I actually knew quite well, actually owned quite a nice house nearby. But, I mean, if he'd stayed in the Stones, he could have bought the entire estate, perhaps. Yeah. Wow. All right, let's take, a, let's take a quick break on that story, grab a hot dog, and we'll come back and continue the journey through Charlie Watts' career with the Rolling Stones. <laughs> All right, so one of my favorite stories kind of from maybe we can trade them. You're going to you're going to you're going to beat me every time here, but the kind of the one of the ones that I found is and it's look, this is a really classic one. Let me let me kick that off again. That's a really terrible intro. All right, so one of the stories that always comes to mind for me when talking about um the Rolling Stones particularly is the is the story of of how satisfaction came to be. I mean, in terms of Keith Richards waking up in the middle of the night, so yeah. they say, and you can correct me on any of this, right? So he he was asleep. He recorded a rough version of the riff on a on a Phillips cassette player, and he apparently had. Is it true he had no idea that he'd written it? He listened in the morning, and it was just like, yeah. you know, forty minutes of sleep and two minutes of acoustic guitar. Yeah, that's right. In fact, he thought that he'd ripped it off from Martha and Ann Vandella's "Dancing in the Street." Really, and I think that. Well, sort of. I mean, I can see, I can see a, a very shadowy link there. Yeah, but, I mean, that subtle. was the idea. And, and when they 
when he sort of took it to the, the studio for the Stones to do, I think he had in mind that it was only going to be used as a sort of make weight sort of album track. But yeah. the others insisted that it should be a single. And I think that, you know, it became kind of like the pop equivalent, I suppose, of, of the 1812 overture in that it, it yeah. fundamentally it lived in a riff, you know, perhaps yeah, that's being yeah. disparaging about, you know. Um, no, about it is because you don't really know a lot of the words. I mean, everyone knows the first yeah. verse and everyone knows the chorus, yeah. but if we get to that second verse, there's something about a car and there's something yeah. about the radio and something, 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 more and more. Yes, you know you what I mean? That. It's like it goes to yes, – everyone can see. Well, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you did that, send I mean, us that, here that, to that's Australia. That's the story is, is that they did it. Um, and interestingly, at the time, I don't think Brian Jones was actually present on the recording, and I think that was the beginning of his sort of descent – I suppose, right. but yeah, that, that, that's a, that's what you just said is an absolutely true story. Well, what was you interesting know, the, too, it, I found is that apparently they recorded two versions. The first one had Brian Jones on harmonica, apparently the first one. Yeah. Then they lip synced a performance to that on TV, and then recorded the yeah. version we all know two days later, which I yeah, think well, is just version, such a fascinating story. Version we all know didn't actually have Brian Jones on it, um, but I mean, you know, I suppose that. It, the point is that by that time, the Stones had relatively unlimited studio time, so they could sort of experiment with arrangements and yeah, that sort right. of thing. I mean, it wasn't on the scale, you know, the Beatles were allowed, you know, the run of Abbey Road, but the Stones, you know, actually could actually afford to sort of spend a lot of time in the studio rather than, you know, in the old days when they first started recording, when they, you know, there was like a, a sort of, pound sign over every note they produce you know and, mm. and they had to sort of take shortcuts to save save time i suppose um so look but, i mean looking, if you yeah. if you remember i mean if you, if you go back to the film um sympathy for the devil directed mm. by jean-luc goddard it had you know, they, they spent the whole time doing sympathy for the devil you know and, and it, it it took hours and hours and hours you know to do that and i, I mean back in 1964 you know it's like you know it, it, you had to record an album in less than 12 hours <laughs> that's I mean, right. by the time they did sympathy for the devil that wasn't even enough for one track you know yeah yeah that's so funny looking back at those times you know during the record process is there any stories that come to mind regarding charlie watts and kind of his time in the studio with them, or was he always just kind of that quiet force that just kind of just held down the well, beat, checked in and checked out? Well, of he, his was job, still small, he was a still small voice of calm, you know, talking common sense when everybody else was running around like headless chickens. <laughs> um, I mean, and I, I don't know how he managed to keep up really, you know, because everybody yeah. else was sort of on – amphetamines and all that sort of thing i suppose i mean it's it, i suppose there's a parallel there with pete best you know when he was in the beatles i mean he was the one that preferred not to take drugs um although I, it has to be pointed out that in the 1980s when charlie was over you know in the throes of some sort of midlife crisis he actually mm. didn't just sort of overindulge on alcohol but he started messing about with heroin as well yeah, you know, that you know that was very very uncharacteristic, 
But I mean, in in the studio, I mean, he he just sort of. I think the idea was that if if Mick and Keith presented a new song to the group, the one they had to impress was Charlie, because if Charlie wasn't into it, you know, then then the whole thing was in danger of of not being used, you know. And I just wonder how they managed to get certain songs past him, you know, like you know, Lady Jane, which is the absolute antithesis of jazz but as i yeah. said earlier on you know charlie wasn't only a jazzer i mean he was basically a jazzer but i mean he was he was open-minded about other other sort of types of music mm. it's it's interesting too because i heard a couple of stories the last few days about this side of charlie watts's persona where he was the guy that everyone wanted to impress because of, I guess, the way he used silence, I guess, or the way he dressed or well, it was just him. Yeah. I mean, he was clearly a very smart guy or a very clever musician, you know, clearly. Uh, but there was something more to it within the group, wasn't it? Maybe it's, it's, well, it's yeah, always the I quiet mean, one you got to watch out for. Well, it, yes, it is. I mean, you know, like in the Yardbirds, for example, everybody thinks of all the, the sort of main sort of lead guitarists, you know, Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck. But I mean, really, it was the quiet guys at the back that wrote the songs, you know, and it, it is often the case, you know, that that somebody who I think that that as far as the Stones were concerned, it was Charlie who was the cool one. You know, as I yeah. said, when they were when the others were sort of getting involved in drugs and groupies and all that, he didn't. He he sort of you know remained some sort of yardstick of normality, if you like. Mm. I mean, for example, when they they were invited to the play, you know, Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. I mean, whatever the others people were up to with all the bunny girls i mean charlie spent the whole time there sort of playing pool you know it's that sort of thing i mean he had a very very solid marriage i mean he was married to the same same girl for you know decades you know and it was he never sort of indulged in 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 the sort of excesses that the other sort of not just the same other sort of you know rock stars did and i i don't think he was particularly comfortable as a rock star. I think he thought it was silly. You know, he, 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 I mean, I I think he, you know, when he turned up at the the gigs, particularly the stadium ones, he sort of got carried away with all the excitement and all that. But he, um, you know, I think that, 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 to be honest, I don't think, apart from the sort of financial aspect, I don't think that it would have made a lot of difference to Charlie if the stones had gone, gone sort of strange on him. I mean, I've got this, this vision, this vision of him, had he not joined the, the stone sort of running sort of rhythm and improvisation courses, at a, an adult education center or something yeah. like that, you yeah. know, immersing himself in music as the sort of other people would immerse themselves in other sort of family men would immerse themselves in photography or do it yourself or, I don't know, collecting stamps or something like that. Coaching the local you sports know. team. Yes, I mean, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Writing their theme song or just, you know, running, playing the drums as they all come onto the field. I mean. Yeah. But, I mean, you have to remember, too, that Charlie was, in fact, a very gifted visual artist as well because he went to Harrow School of Art and perhaps he could have sort of made some sort of impact as that. I mean, I think he was, a, he was into, when he was, 
even as he joined the Stones, he was still working as a as a graphic artist at this mm. sort of firm yeah, in, in the middle yeah. of London. You know, and I mean, he did. He, Charlie actually wrote a book. Did you know that, or rather, no, put together a book called "Ode to a High Flying Bird," and it was a children's book. And the bird concern was actually Charlie Yardbird Parker. And it was I like, do remember this Charlie, now that you say that. That's right. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, and it was kind of like a telescoping Parker's life in a, in a sort of children's story. And um, it was actually published, I think, in 1965. I think Jonathan Cape, perhaps, who also did the, the John Lennon books, and it also reappeared many years later on one of Charlie's jazz albums as part of the package. Wow. You know? But I mean, as I say, it, it, there was more to Charlie than just being a drummer. I mean, he did, he did the artwork, in fact, to um, some of the Stones albums. I'm thinking of Between the Buttons. Yep. Do you know that one? The one that yeah, followed Aftermath, yeah. which has actually got a cartoon strip on it drawn by Charlie. And he was also in charge of the actual... Um, sort of logistics and design of their stage sets later on, you know, when, they, when wow. they'd actually become a stadium band. You know, I think he was the one that was behind. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, when the Stones perform, sometimes the, the, a section of the stage actually intrudes into the middle of the audience. It sort of comes out mechanically into the middle of the audience. So I've got a feeling that, that Charlie might have been the brains behind that. Yeah. You know. What an interesting, what an interesting um, career and life, and let's let's continue uh, down that path. Um, uh, we'll be right back. He really was, I guess, a lot of people have been saying um, more recently that, and that for a, for a long period of time, he was an unconventional kind of rock star because of oh, all these yeah. things you're talking about, because of all these strange elements, his fine suits. I mean, a lovely car collection that he had isn't, isn't strange, but then my understanding is he didn't have a license. No, he couldn't drive. But I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, well, no, he didn't have a car collection. I think he collected drum kits the way that Lord Bewley collected um, motor cars. Do you know what I'm talking right. about? No. Lord no, Bewley, he was, he was, well, he was, a, he was a famous sort of British car collector. He had a, right. a state in Dorset and he had, you know, the world's most impressive car collection. But Charlie collected drum kits. Um, he also collected memorabilia about the American Civil War. And he was also wow. an expert on Italian marble pigs. You know, well, what a strange, <laughs> what a strange speciality. Well, it was absolutely, you know, um, you know, and I, I think that he was obviously very content with his wealth, and he just sort of lived quietly in in the West Country on a on a farm where his. Um, where his wife bred sort of Arab horses. And I think Charlie was more into dogs. Apparently there was a, quite a pack of, of canines that used to follow him around. In fact, he used to say he actually preferred the company of dogs to human beings, you know, and I, I suppose I can wow. empathise with that. You know, but yeah, yeah I mean, he's a human being, doesn't but, it? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he certainly, you know, I, I think that sort of marks him as as very different from the sort of the accepted image of a pop star, you know, every yeah. way. I mean, he took his job seriously. I mean, every time there was a tour coming up, you know, for about a fortnight before they started rehearsing, he would practice for maybe 10 hours a day, you know, on his on his on his kit at home. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose it was quite fortunate that he didn't have neighbours nearby to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, he's fine to listen to in a stadium, not when you live next door, guys. It's, yeah, it's well, interesting. That's, that's... Yeah, it's interesting too because I, I was uh, there's that great story uh, about him getting the call, and I might let you tell it because I think you'll tell it more eloquently than me, perhaps. I know but... what you're going to say. Is it yeah, about it's... Mick Jagger calling him up to? That's right. Know, so apparently, in the middle of the night, the boys have been out. Drummer. That's right. So the boys have been out. We'll set it, we'll set it up. So the boys have been out having a few beers, maybe after a show or who knows, and they come home to the hotel and it's Keith and it's, um, and it's Mick and they get to Mick's hotel room and they get on the phone and they call up to Charlie's hotel room and they say, um, where's my drummer? Where's my drummer? To get him to come down, obviously have a couple of beers. And so, you know, Charlie was asleep. Yeah. You might as well tell it. I, I, I trust you to tell it. Thank you. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll keep going. So, so then Charlie, let's see if I get it all right though. So then, so then, Charlie then apparently hangs up the phone, shines his shoes, presses his suit, puts it on, has a shave, um, gets ready as you would if you were going to greet the queen, and uh, goes to to Mick's hotel room, knocks on the door, Mick opens the door, and he just pops him one straight on the chin. Now, this is where different opinions, this is where I'm going to turn to you now, Alan, because a lot of different people say different things here. What happened from here? Well, I, he, he, he went in there and sort of roughed up Mick Jagger. And, but, and I think that the most memorable sentence from that conversation was, I'm not your drummer, you're my singer. singer. <laughs> there was, there was an, an adjective in front of yeah, <laughs> and, and I think that was that was the sort of thrust of it. Um, and after that, I don't think you know. I think certainly Mick thought twice about referring to him as my drummer again. You know, but, I mean, Charlie was actually a, a great admirer of of, um, of Mick. I mean, he he used to say, you know, he doesn't know how Mick does it. You know, he doesn't mm. know how Mick has got this sort of audience control and and and. The, well, not only control, but capable of sort of whipping up the crowd, you know, while while Charlie just sort of toils away in the background. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly think that, you know, the fact that the Stones were able to continue for so long was down to sort of mutual respect. You know, I don't, mm. I don't think, you know, I think that had that respect been eroded, that, then they couldn't have carried on. I mean, I suppose up to a point, I mean... No, you're right. I've heard I've I've heard interviews with Charlie was referring to Mick as the greatest frontman of all time. I've seen those interviews yeah. where he just says, and exactly what you're saying, to be able to capture that many people in one place and bring them all together to hear yeah. this vocal and this story, that is the role of kind of the frontman, you know, and yeah. and, and, it, and it, it's you know, enjoy their antics, don't enjoy them. Uh, yeah. you know, that you that is a pretty big feat. You know, one of my yeah, other right. favorite stories about Charlie is, uh, and you may be able to expand on this, is the 
the the tracing or drawing of the hotel beds. Oh yeah. So what is this? Yeah, I think. Well, that's his sort of artistic side coming out of it. I mean, I, you know, the problem is that when you're traveling like he does, you know, a, a hotel room in you know Adelaide or a hotel room in you know I don't know Wellington or new york or los angeles is is pretty much the same you know everywhere in a holiday inn or a trust house forte and i think that he, he i don't know why he did it but i mean he, he apparently used to sort of as soon as he settled in to a hotel room he used to sketch it um i don't know what he did with the drawings i mean maybe he destroyed them straight away or maybe there's maybe there's left some them sort there, of, signed them yeah, there's just a collection well, perhaps, of yeah, probably worse sketches around the world. But, you know, or maybe he sort of kept them in a book somewhere. But, you know, that's what he did. I mean, uh, I don't know whether he did that rather than take a good book to read or something like that. Yeah. You know, I, you know I've but often thought, you know, when I'm out on the road, I often think about, you know, little tricky ways that you can give yourself a focus that isn't, you know, another way to come down after the show. I mean, it's a real thing. Well, it is. So, you also you know, have to remember that Charlie couldn't or none of the stages could actually venture beyond the hotel where they were staying, you know, without drawing attention. Although yeah. what is interesting about Charlie, you know, when he lived in Devon is how privately ordinary he seemed, you know, when he ventured beyond his house. And, and I think that, you know, the towns nearby, you know, Barnstable, Biddeford, wherever, I think he became rather, him and his wife became rather everyday sights around there, you know, sort of shopping in the supermarket or something like that. And people yeah. tended not to bother them, you know, sort of bother them for autographs and things like that. You know. Maybe to ask where his uh, tailor is situated, maybe about the latest marble pig fad. I mean, there's lots of things <laughs> you could stop Charlie about. Well, yeah, there's lots of things you could talk about, but I don't think Charlie was particularly communicative in that respect. Although apparently, you know, in, in private life, he was a very funny man. Yeah. You know? He made some funny faces, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, well, look, yeah. what we're going to do now, folks, is uh, stick stick to the – get ready for the very end of the chat. I'm going to share some more some more uh, quotes from various people that have left some sort of messages over the past couple of months about him, including, you know, Bruce Springsteen's drummer and um, uh, just a whole bunch of people. So I'm going to do that after my chat with Alan. But we're going to take one more break, and we're going to come back, and I'm going to ask Alan what it's like to, to sort of work on – on these books that he's created about all these incredible artists and just how that takes place. I think that's a really interesting thing. So for those that you want to stick around and hear that, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back to talk more about that. All right, Alan, so you've written so many books about so many interesting people, and I imagine it takes an interesting bloke to do this. So how do you go about doing this? Like, how do you condense these things down into however many pages? And how do you, how do you remember all this? How do you do it? Well, uh, the thing is that, that I absorbed all this information as a teenager, and I think that sort of um, – you know, reading the Melody Maker or the New Musical Express, all those newspapers were far more meaningful to me than sort of, you know, reading War Picture Library or, you know, or, or the Beano. Can you tell me an Australian child's comic that they would have read in the 60s? 
you could think of. Well, that sort Jeez, of thing. This, anyway. is a, this is a question. Well, yeah, the thing is, I used, I used to follow pop groups the way other boys used to, you know, follow football teams yeah. or something like that. And yeah. it was all sort of absorbed, and it, it was far more meaningful to me when I was at, at grammar school. It's far more meaningful to me than sort of Euclid theorems or Oxbow Lakes or, you know, or, or the the you know the teachings of ezekiel in the new in the old <laughs> testament and you know it, it was all it was all embedded um and i mean i think my literary career sort of left the runway in 1980 when i was in a, a shop in london a music excuse me a music shop in london buying some guitar strings because you know i was actually um and still am a performer and a recording artist and a yes. songwriter long before i became an author and right. behind the counter in this shop was a i noticed a former member of the dave clark five and he was working behind the camera. I thought, I wondered, why is nobody noticing? Why is anybody making a fuss of him? Don't they know who this man is? He was a bass player, in fact, and I sort of started conversation with him. And we put together an article about the Dave Clark Five for a, a British magazine called Record Collector. And after that, more articles followed. And in 1985, I was commissioned to write my very first book, which was called Call Up the Groots, The Golden Age of British Beat, 1962 to 1967. And it sort of, you Good know... Good years. Good years. Well, yeah, but it, but it had, it, you know, after that, sort of, I became, you know, a professional author. And, I, and so far, I've written about sort of 30 books, nearly all of them on musical subjects. And, um, I mean, you asked me how I go about it. Well, I mean, that's a bit – I mean, I, I do remember a, a point when I was writing Call Up the Groups, and it was about 4 o'clock in the morning. I was stuck trying to write something constructive about a singer called Chris Farlow. You heard of him? No, I don't know Chris well, Farlow at all. He had a number one in England with um, – with a song called Out of Time, which was from Aftermath. It was a cover. And I thought, I can't do this. And it's easy to say, you know, suddenly something appeared to me in a flash, but it didn't. And I, I was on the point of giving the whole thing up. Really? You know, it was four o'clock in the morning, and I, you know, and I, I, at the time I was doing a proper job, and I had to go to work in about, you know, four hours' time. And I thought, <laughs> let's, let's pack this in. Let's not do this anymore. But somehow, you know, I, I sort of persisted and gradually I ground out the next sort of tipex drenched sentence, you know, and that, that's that's how that got going. But, I mean, after that, it became a lot easier, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you asked me how long I take to write these things. Well, it's a bit sort of how long is a piece of string. And it also depends whether or not I have the cooperation of the subject. I mean, I've had some authorised biographies um i've written authorized biography of the yardbirds and the trogs and um most recently uh, and it's due to be published in the next spring i i'm this probably sound like i'm making it up but i'm i'm frank zappa's authorized biographer um and that well, came about yeah, it does sound I, like you're lying uh no no that's brilliant i can't wait to read that that's tremendous alan 
Well, I, I'll make sure you get a review copy. But, um, Please, yeah, we'll have to come on and chat about but, it. That's well, brilliant. I mean that that came well that came about because about well, fifteen years ago, I wrote a book about a composer called Edgar Varese. You heard of him? Yeah, I've heard. He, of he was contemporaneous with Stravinsky, and yeah. it, it sold very very poorly. And I sort of forgot about it. And then about ten years ago. I got this phone call from California by somebody claiming to be Gail Zappa. That's the widow, right? right. And when you get a call like that, you think it's somebody messing about. But it was true, and it was her. And she bought my Edgar Varese book because he was Frank's favourite composer. And she said, well, next time I'm in London, we must do lunch. And a a few weeks later, she was... And um, we went for one of these Nouvelle Cuisine meals. You've ever, you ever had one of those? Yeah. Where you come yeah. out feeling famished. Yeah. Uh, but the upshot <laughs> of it was that she... she, she you come out and like, go straight for another meal. <laughs> you yes, come straight yeah. out and head to Macca's. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But, but anyway, the point is that, that she asked me, you know, she asked me if, if I'd like to sort of write... An, an official life of her late husband and i thought oh god you know this is a pension plan mm. you know i'm I, I a huge fan of frank zappa yeah uh, i mean i did express i did express certain doubts i said you know for example you know I, i'm an english writer and i don't understand things like for instance you know the u.s education system but she thought it would make me more objective yeah and um anyway after a it all went quiet for a few years and then then we got a sort of publishing deal and like i say it's out in in um next spring i mean i think uh, unfortunately sadly uh, gail died uh, about three years ago and I, I was quite upset because she actually become a friend as well as just yeah. somebody that commissioned me to write the book and uh, you know uh, and, and that sort of didn't help you know it sort of held things up but anyway like i say it's officially scheduled to be out next spring sorry i've I'm, I'm wandered off the I'm no no this is wonderful from... so no 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 brilliant so what i'm going to say now is so alan i'm going to hold you to come back on and talk about the book when it happens i can't wait to read it i can't wait yes. to come and chat about it now for anyone that wants to go and check out some of alan's music his books more about it everything that he does and is doing now some of the other books are on the stones john lennon jimmy hendrix i mean the list goes on you can visit his website in our show notes you can um yeah visit in the show notes stick around for later in this episode where i'll talk a bit more about charlie watts but alan thank you so much for coming and talking in what is a blistering hot day in the uk oh it's murderous day i can't believe the wi-fi is still working it's so hot over there well, yeah, that's why we had trouble earlier on communicating. But yeah, yeah it's, it, it really is horrible, you know. But uh, you know, as you say, you're enjoying better weather over there. Well, it's but been a anyway, real pleasure talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Brad. What, likewise, and thanks for sharing some of of Charlie's story for everyone that doesn't know. And yeah, I can't encourage everyone to go and, and buy a couple of books and let's listen to some music from Alan. They're really, really, really awesome. <laughs> This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers. 
created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit OFM.com. Listener.